Welcome to another exciting, wow, why did I say that is a question? No, it is going to be exciting. Another exciting episode of Adventures in DevOps. Joining me in the studio today, as usual, my co-host, Jonathan Hall. Hey, everyone. I am super excited. (laughs) (laughs) And then the reason for the excitement today is we have the guy with the coolest name in DevOps. We have Johnny Dallas joining us from Zeet. Welcome, Johnny. Thanks, Will. It's like to be here. And I'm uh, definitely excited. <laughs> cool. So the first question I have before we give you a chance to introduce yourself is, um, is Johnny Dallas your your birth name? Or did you pick that thinking, I'm just going to do rock star DevOps, so I need a rock star sounding name? <laughs> it was uh no it's 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 my real name it's actually my dad's name as well so you, you can give him the blame uh I come from a right long line of john dallas's um the only, only one who's gone by johnny for whatever reason feels like such a gimme it's right there <laughs> it is like it it's just meant to be echoed out on a stage right and, uh, cool so for anyone who's not familiar with with your work tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, happy to. Um, I'm Johnny Dallas. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Zeet. Uh, we help engineering teams build internal developer platforms and do DevOps easier. Um, been uh, doing DevOps for a long time. I got started in tech when I was in high school and ran a DevOps for a previous startup, spent some time at AWS, um, then uh, left there in 2020 to start this company. So been in small companies, been the cloud providers themselves, now building dev tools, trying to bring DevOps to everybody, make it a little bit easier. Right on. So started doing DevOps when you were in high school. Uh, how did that work with your your class work? <laughs> yeah, so it's a weird place to, to start. I think, uh, you know, DevOps, you got to be on call. You're, you're, it's important that you're around. It's important that you're available. Um, and High school, you don't really get to be available. You have to, <laughs> <laughs> you you show up in the morning and you sit in class and you raise your hand when you have to use the bathroom and it's it's very prescribed. So, um, yeah, I was in charge of all of our kind of operations at, a, at an early startup called Bebo um, while I was in high school. Uh, did not work kind of the way typical SRE or DevOps organizations did because of my limited schedule and the limited resources of our team. So we had to use software quite a bit. I used to think of myself as the software engineer in the DevOps hat more than an SRE or DevOps person um, kind of from the from the ground up. Um, so lots of automation, lots of systems making it so that the rest of our developers could do what they had to do without having to talk to me. Um, though, got paged my fair share of times in a, in the middle of finals or uncomfortable situations like that. <laughs> <laughs> I can just imagine where in, in high school, some kids were like sneaking out of class to go out behind the gym and, and smoke a cigarette or whatever. And you're sneaking out to go log into the system and handle an on-call event. Uh, the number of times that I've had to log into the console, console, um, and uh, deal with some sync issue there, 
yeah, <laughs> not quite as uh, spicy of a reason to sneak out of class, but uh, <laughs> I was happy with it. <laughs> uh, if we can talk about this without putting you too much on the spot, how long ago was this? Yeah, I don't yeah. want to put a date on your on you too too much, but <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, I'm I'm 21 now, so I uh, started when I was uh, I was doing this when I was 15, 16, so okay. five five years ago, something like that. Um, I think yeah. 2017, 2018, um, when I got started. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I will say, well, there were uh, quite a few times getting paged um, in in not fun situations. The the business we were building at the time was a. Uh, Esports company. We were doing a, an esports platform, helping um, run some of the largest Fortnite and, and Call of Duty tournaments in the in the world at the time. And uh, we would host giant, massive, twenty thousand plus uh, person tournaments where everybody would be live streaming video to our servers from around the world. And I remember very distinctly we had our our biggest tournament of the of the year one time. Soldier Boy and Ninja and all these celebrities were, were competing in this tournament and the tournament starts and five, six minutes into it, all of the video crashes and it's completely down and everybody's freaking <laughs> out where what's going on? Is this going to come back? Is this a temporary thing? And I get paged, of course, um, in the middle of a math final. And I have to tell my teacher i'm like hey soldier boy's on the phone can i take this i really he 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 sounds mad i think i gotta deal with this i'll be right back and i've never forgotten the look of bewilderment on her face of like you what what are you doing you're (laughs) stepping out to ssh onto an ec2 instance in eu west one because of soldier i don't understand any of the words you're saying to me right now (laughs) Yeah, so not only are you ditching class to deal with work, but you're dealing with work that is for an e-gamer. That's something that our education industry doesn't really recognize as a, a real profession anyway. So it's just adding, just <laughs> adding layers layer. to this. <laughs> that's great. I gave up quickly on trying to, to win those arguments. <laughs> <laughs> you just Look, I'm just going to go smoke a joint, okay? Is that easier for you to handle? <laughs> I'll be back. Don't worry. <laughs> right. <laughs> I did uh, similar stuff when I was in high school, which was much longer ago. Uh, EC2 instances did not exist yet. Um, but I, I never stepped out of class to just fix stuff. Uh, and part of that probably is because it was so early in the in the sort of technology cycle that nobody expected the internet to be fixed right away. Like if the internet broke, they're like, oh, maybe it'll be ready tomorrow. <laughs> and that was just fine. <laughs> you know, this is dial-up days. You know, I, basically, I ran a very small dial-up ISP out of my parents' house when I was in high school and served half the town uh, dial-up internet. But, you know, if it didn't work, they, they'll just try tomorrow. <laughs> right. I'll just put it in the mail. That's fine, too. Yeah. yeah <laughs> there's no SREs. There's no pager duty. There, there's no, no SLA <laughs> measured in, in minutes. <laughs> That obviously puts some unique constraints on how you view building and deploying systems. Tell me a little bit about how um, how that led to where you're at now with Z. Like, what what was the the chain of events or thought process that made you say, you know, what we need we need another company in the digital space. So I'm going to launch one. <laughs> 
Yeah. So uh, there were some, uh, as you said, it there were some definite unique constraints on uh, kind of the infrastructure setup that we had to build at that previous startup. Um, one of the most obvious ones was we couldn't really have a human in the loop for most DevOps interactions. We had a, a team of 10 to 12 um, application developers who were great at building product, great at talking to customers, great at thinking about what should exist and making it happen. Um, but they weren't really comfortable with infrastructure and we, <laughs> we need to deploy somehow. Um, so one of the first things we did was how can this team of developers who don't want to touch AWS, who don't want to touch infrastructure, who don't want to learn about it, um, scale. So we engineered a system so that they had to put a JSON file in the root directory of a GitHub repo, and that's all it needed to configure all the build and runtime settings. And we uh, made a nice UI so our, our CTO could click one button and it would spin up a whole region with all of the Terraform and Ansible automation that that entailed. Um, we kind of approached it with this idea of it needs to be self-serve first. I think uh, when I was creating the system, we we had a button to spin up a region. We probably clicked that button a hundred times just to spin it up, spin it down, spin it up, spin it down until it was perfectly automated, actually self-serve 100% of the time, actually usable. Um, and that you know became one of the guiding principles of platform engineering now. Uh, really, how do you scale that? self-serve nature? How do you put a product in the place of um, the DevOps interface so that application developers can do their job without needing to talk to somebody? Um, so that it, it, was, it was a real forcing function back then. We didn't have a DevOps team. He only had a software engineer who was around some of the time to make it work. Had to go from there. You build a product that way. Right on. It, it sounds a lot like um, when I was with Aptive, See, I think it might have actually been around the same time frame. We did a very similar thing where the developers could self-serve. Um, we went with a YAML file, so they could drop a YAML file in their repo, and that would configure everything that that they needed um, to go up and run. And it, it worked out really cool because one of the things that I learned from that was, you're right, developers don't want to learn any more about infrastructure than they absolutely have to to do their job and if in a perfect world that world they would learn zero about it not not like trying to say anything negative about them but they've already got enough things that they're responsible for so we don't want to add to that they don't want to add to that uh, but one of the cool things we saw coming out of that was we gave them this way to self-serve and then they would say oh wait well, can it do this instead? Or can it do, you know, whatever idea they had? And initially we would build that in for them if it was something we thought would be widely used. But then we started saying, well, you know, we do accept pull requests. And then the <laughs> development team started actually adding all of these features themselves. And so the, the DevOps team, which consisted of me, one other person, and our QA person worked with us part-time we just kind of sat back and watched this thing take a life of its own on. Yeah, I think that's the that's the beauty of DevTools. Um, I think one of the things I always think about with DevTools is people should use it in ways that surprise you. People should have use cases that you can't design for on day one um, or else you haven't really you know, unlocked a system that can grow beyond yourself. So like for us, uh, 
we had a JSON file um, and it was very simple. It was, you know, what's the command that you want to run to build? What's the command you want to run for runtime and uh, a little bit of health check configuration. Uh, but very explicitly in kind of how we set up health checks, it was tell us the port to hit on your on your container and you decide entirely how you want to handle health checks. You, We had like a, a custom format. This was very non-standard, <laughs> but a, a custom format for responding with your capacity and your kind of availability in that health check so that teams could kind of control their auto-scaling with their application logic. They didn't have to learn about some infrastructure system. They just thought about returning a JSON blob on a certain endpoint. And so it allowed these teams to, when normally they would ask me, hey, how can I set up this type of auto-scaling, this type of auto-scaling? Well, you already know. Make make your application return the right logic when you want it to go up and a a different number when we want it to go down. And uh, that just really freed them up to go and build. That's cool. I haven't heard that approach before of just letting the health check dictate, you know, because a lot of times in my experience, it's been memory utilization, CPU, uh, latency. But I kind of like that idea of just let the application itself decide if it needs more help or not. It was a it was an interesting approach. Um, I would say that was kind of the issue is it didn't account for things like memory and, and CPU and other kind of resource utilization. So we ended up adding that as a separate um, system level check and then combining kind of the application level check and the system level check um, to determine full health. So there, there are pros and cons. I think it was nice to give them the flexibility. Um, with my work now, you know, we were kind of taking this idea of what if you could have a, a simple developer platform that sits on top of your cloud that makes you know your, your cloud a lot more accessible to developers who aren't super infrastructure um, advanced, let's say. Uh, and one of the first features that we built into this is a similar thing here. If you can export custom metrics on a certain path and use that to auto-scale using Prometheus metrics and, and Keta. Far more advanced of a setup now, but how do we just give application developers control over how the application works without them having to dig into infrastructure tooling? Um, I think is really interesting. And Health Checks is one low, one interface that makes that possible. So let's talk a little bit about what you're doing over at Zeet. So now you're, Zeet is a platform that allows customers to build their own internal development platform. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, I'd say that's accurate. Cool. Who's, who is um, jumping on board with that? Do you find that it's existing DevOps teams or are development teams coming to you looking to um, looking to take this on themselves? We, we, we see a bit of both. I'd say like, uh, you know, when you look at the market, there's um, the platform as a service companies like, you know, Heroku, uh, Fly, Render, Railway more recently um, that are really centered on the developer experience. Um, and they're really great tools. I mean, I think they're way more accessible versions than uh, of infrastructure than the AWS console or, or something like Terraform um, <laughs> for just somebody coming off the street, learn, learning development. Like you said, there's a ton of jobs to do in development. It's a lot of responsibility. So th- those have been great platforms. Um, however, they tap out at some point on, on kind of capabilities. There's certain use cases that just aren't going to be supported by them. Um, and you have to go down to AWS in those cases. You can't really go and deploy a Ethereum node on Heroku, for example, or uh, advanced networking stack. 
um, on, on render. And so what we really look to do is how do we give you some of the developer experience from these platform as service companies with the power of your cloud? So we deploy onto your cloud, we give you a simple interface on top of it that infrastructure engineers can customize to determine what the underlying services look like. But application developers have a simple place that they can see all the pieces deployed, they can click or use our API or use a CLI to spin up resources. They don't have to worry about the underlying kind of infrastructure technologies. Right on. And you're doing that across multiple cloud providers too, right? Yeah. Yeah. We have support for six cloud providers now and teams deployed across various combinations of them, um, which has been a really interesting use case. Like like we talked about, you know, let, uh, let people surprise you with use cases. When we started, we were just going to be a easier backend to AWS. And the first time somebody needed two AWS accounts, we were like, oh, wait, the cloud provider is actually a backend. What if we support other cloud providers? And now we see multi-cloud use cases that uh, surprise us every day. It's pretty exciting to see. We actually, uh, uh, we, multi-cloud's really interesting. Uh, you know, having a platform like this that just makes infrastructure accessible, you see people do really interesting things with it. Uh, I think we recently saw a team came on and they're doing a, they're doing chatbots. Um, I think with all the AI hype right now, there's a ton of new chatbot companies, but they really needed to scale and they had a ton of credits from a bunch of different cloud providers. They linked an AWS, an Azure, and a Google Cloud account and spun up 10,000 chatbots on day one across like 3,000 per cloud, um, which was just insane to see that this like team of two did that on day one <laughs> by virtue of this platform like that's awesome i love that that's possible <laughs> right so they're just riding free credits as long as they can yeah it's great i mean every time they they run out one club club writer they make an account somewhere else get a get new credits swap over um power of the platform <laughs> you see that happening a lot not as much as i would expect i think uh most people when they get cloud credits, they get really excited and they claim them and they don't realize that they expire after a year. And then they get to the 11th month, 11 month mark and realize that they use one of their three clouds and doesn't matter, they're all gone. Um, so <laughs> this team specifically is, I think, being strategic about it. Um, I think more people, honestly, I think more people should do that and uh, make the cloud providers work for you a little bit more. Um, but I don't see it that often. That'll be the... Um... That'll be the new training segment to come out of Y Combinator is how to leverage all the cloud providers at once. <laughs> yeah, there you go. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to put that video out. <laughs> right. <laughs> Speaking of multi-cloud, like with uh, something like Terraform, you know, you can deploy to any cloud, <clears throat> but it's you know you write different code for depending on the cloud provider that you're you're targeting. Um, is that how did you approach that problem or solve that problem when using Zeet? Yeah, so I think there's two pieces to it that we think about. Um, one is you'll kind of have to acknowledge that you're going to give up something. Uh, if you're if you're building to the greatest common denominator between two clouds, there's going to be something that it was supports that Google Cloud doesn't and vice versa. So with that in mind, the thing we started with was what's the biggest greatest common denominator we can we can build off of what's the most common unit of abstraction across the clouds um, and managed kubernetes was i think a obvious choice for us so uh, we built a lot of our product off of kubernetes 
we we have some other pieces for like serverless and, and um, various databases as well. But Kubernetes is where the the meat is. Um, and then we built two abstractions that could kind of exist across clouds. So our, our core unit is like an application. Um, we have simple controls for what ports do you want to expose without any nuances around how this security group implementation might work versus that security group implementation. Um, but then I think the real magic was we make these abstractions transparent. So teams can use kind of a Z app to deploy across any of the clouds that we support. But if you want to dig in and make this using something special in AWS, using something special in GCP or something specific in a certain cloud, uh, you can customize that template. You can dig into that implementation and customize it for your own use case because it's your cloud. (laughs) You should have full control. We are not in the business of getting in your way. We're in the business of, you know, accelerating you. So it's been a kind of a a two-faceted piece of go to the greatest common denominator as well as do it in a way that you can peel back the onion and it can be transparent so people can customize that if they want to in the future. So for companies that <clears throat> that adopt this, how does the role of DevOps change for their existing DevOps team? Because like a lot of the, in my experience, a lot of the work that you do is in DevOps is building out that infrastructure platform and and maintaining that. So what does that look like um, in in this environment? Yeah, I mean, I'd say it, uh, I'll caveat with this with, uh, depends on the team. <laughs> every team is different. <laughs> every DevOps team is different. Every requirement is different, et cetera. What? Um, there's not a one-size-fits-all solution? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to say, Jonathan, there's a, we haven't, we haven't solved it all yet. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that said, there are some patterns, you know, there are some trends. Uh, I'd say generally with existing DevOps teams, you kind of fall into one of two groups. You either become the platform engineer who is, you know, building this whole product, this whole platform, or you become a, a service team where you're dedicated to a certain type of resource or a certain area of the infrastructure and you integrate that into the platform. Um, an example of this might be maybe you go and become part of the compute service team and you're worried about how do how does this platform provision compute? How do upgrades happen? What versions are we currently using for different software on the instances? Um, whereas the platform team might be thinking about, should this be accessible through a CLI or UI or an API? Or what's the right way to communicate from this team to that team? Uh, do we have the right support for the right types of databases and the right types of compute available to me? Um, it's more about the operations, whereas service teams are more thinking about how do I expose this piece of infrastructure to the rest of the company? Um, what I like about this is this is much more similar to how product teams operate. <laughs> there's a platform and there's consumers and producers on it. Uh, and it feels like a much more scalable architecture than go talk to that guy and he'll figure it out. And I think that one of the um, big takeaways from that, from my from my perspective, is uh, you know look at your backlog. If you're on a DevOps team, and you're considering like, wait, what's this going to do to my job? I always tell people, just look at your backlog because there's stuff, every team I've ever worked worked in, there's a backlog of stuff that you look at and you just laugh like, yeah, I'll never get to that. And so that's where tools like this aren't actually taking your job away. They're actually freeing you up to go take care of those things that you know you're currently not going to get to until like, 
2048 or something. <laughs> exactly. It's a uh, free you up to get through your backlog and or take that thing that's two years down your backlog and just give it to you on day one. Right. Like, yeah, men of early platform teams I've talked to who are trying to figure out what the right way to interface with their platform is. And you know, everyone starts with a developer portal like Backstage or, you know, using tools like that. And everybody dreams of having a CLI that's custom built for their use case and they will never build it. <laughs> or it's it's kind of years <laughs> down the years down the line um in the kind of ideal state that they want. It's like, yeah, you're just not gonna get there. Um yeah. Let me help you. <laughs> I've been looking through the website and I have to say I like the green. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad the uh I'm glad you like the green. Um we're we're a fan of the green. It was, uh, <laughs> I still use a green and black terminal, you know, the old like yeah. hacker hacker man style. Um, no. So want to bring some of that in. <laughs> right. I mean, that's instant credibility. Think, yeah. You got I it. think it's cool. Like, I, I don't know if everybody does this. Um, it's probably one of my silly habits. But I use the mouse cursor to, to click and drag on text I'm reading to sort of keep my place. And as, as you do that, it highlights in, in, in bright green. So that, that's kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, oh, that's not really relevant out. to the topic, but it's fun. <laughs> What's that, Will? No, I was just, I was just doing that. It's like, holy! I mean, oops! Like, holy! Heck, I <laughs> <laughs> this used to be a PG podcast. Yeah, <laughs> but that's how cool the feature is. I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> Let's talk about your CSS style now. Forget about DevOps. Right. Talk about CSS. <laughs> the truest dev- developer operations is uh, is writing CSS <laughs> or is right. highlighting through text. <laughs> what are what are devs if not people who spend all day writing, reading docs and uh, <laughs> keeping track of where they're at? Anyways, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll pass the compliment along to our designers. Uh, I'm sure nice. they'll be happy to see somebody paid attention to the to the details um <laughs> i know there was a lot of decision making around the the green <laughs> i'm kind of curious um like if somebody wants to onboard with zeet um, um this is one of the things i've been trying to figure out as i'm reading the website help, help me understand like what's this what's the specific problem that the decision maker is going to be having that would cause him to click on the the try now button yeah, so for uh, you know early teams, uh, teams who are more like the startup I was describing earlier, uh, lots of application developers, few DevOps engineers, or few kind of people thinking about infrastructure. Um, the try now is if I need to deploy something and I don't know how to, or there's something more complex that I need to manage, how am I going to do that? I'm looking for some easy platform. And I know I'd prefer to be in AWS because maybe I have credits or I expect to kind of scale up scale in a more complex way um and it's just a better place to stay in than some company that i don't necessarily know if it's gonna be around for 10 years um that that's kind of the one big reason people come to us is i need to deploy i want to do it scalably i want to do it effectively give me a nice clean interface i think the the other one which is more interesting is uh larger teams who you know have a devops team have an application or product engineering team and they are really struggling with self-service. Or maybe they just hired a bunch of new application developers who are new grads and are 
<laughs> entering the industry and, and learning about all the tools that they don't know about. Um, maybe they just grew quite a bit and, and they have kind of new infrastructure uh, capabilities that need to add. Maybe they're doing some big digital transformation. Whatever the reason, they feel like infrastructure isn't accessible to enough of the engineering team. And what we do there is we work with the infrastructure engineering team uh, to turn any kind of templates or any existing services they have into accessible services on Z. And then their application teams are able to come in and click or uh, use YAML or use API or CLI to provision the infrastructure um, in a more intuitive way. So those are the two big use cases we, we really see today. Early teams need a platform to deploy. Later stage teams looking to really enable self-service. And in that first category, who are the who's approaching you? Is it a founding engineer or, or a CTO type person? Or is it a non-technical founder? How, who's who's making these uh, these calls to you? We, uh, we we like to say the DevOps by default person. Um, I think there's always <laughs> one. <laughs> the uh, the person who didn't really really realize that this was going to be their job when they started, but now is on the hook for all the DevOps stuff. Uh, often this is a founding engineer or technical founder. Sometimes it's a senior engineer who fell into this trap. Um, but DevOps by default is, I think, the relatable phrase there. <laughs> Which probably describes most of us who have been doing DevOps for several years. Like, damn, how did I end up in this spot? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's funny. Once you start doing it, it kind of just doesn't stop. Um, but uh, it's it's a fun job. Yeah, always new challenges, right? <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. I think one of the other interesting um, aspects of this is on the, the side of working with larger teams, one of the problems I've always faced is when you get to those larger teams, you know, you have a bunch of different teams that are building products and you have a smaller DevOps team. And ideally you want your DevOps team to be working with that application team early in their application development life cycle. So that as they're making architectural decisions, you're there to either steer them one direction or get heads up of what's coming your way. And as the number of application teams grows, it gets harder to do that. And you find yourself in this position where teams are hitting you up saying, hey, we built this thing and marketing has the post to announce it scheduled for three hours from now. Can you deploy it? And like, wait, what? <laughs> and, and I think that's where something like this can help because a lot of the applications that get built, the application code is different, but how it runs and scales is the same, you know, whether it's a an API or a single page app or whatever, they, they're kind of all built the same way. And so this um, allows you to give those application teams a way to just go to production. And you know that whenever they follow this path, all of the things that you want to happen are going to happen whether they know know that those need to happen or not, you know, things like you got to run multiple instances across different availability zones or regions, and you've got to be behind a load balancer and use SSL and all of that stuff that they may not know needs to happen, or if they do know that it needs to happen, they may not know how to implement it. This gives you a way to just say, click this button, and all of that stuff is going to be done for you. And so that 
number one, gives your application team's ability to move at their speed. It also takes workload off of your team. And when you take that workload off, it may actually free up enough time where you can work your way back with those teams to meet them earlier in their development lifecycle to handle the edge cases that are going to be coming down the road. Like, oh, hey, we need a, a Kafka cluster across two regions in about an hour and a half. Is that cool? <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. It's like if you give them the building blocks that um, are already blessed or already kind of the golden paths or already guaranteed to be the right architecture, you give them these building blocks and let them play with them. Uh, as long as you know that all the blocks are solid and anything they make out of them is going to be solid, you can take your hands off a lot and allow iteration to happen that much faster. I think fundamentally that's, that's the job of DevOps, right? Is to uh, enable developers to move faster and make sure we don't get in the way. Uh, we do need to make sure that it's still done in a compliant way and still we're, we're still responsible for uptime and we're still responsible for compliance and security. So how do we do that without slowing down iteration? Because um, it's not be the guy who stands in the way and says, nope, can't release this. Sorry, you guys got to push, 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 push. Or at least it's you, you want to be there as little as possible. Um, so give them the building blocks that they can use. I think, uh, you know, we've kind of bridged this, uh, with, with Zeet, we've kind of bridged this gap between these, these early teams that might use a platform as a service and these later teams who are actually going to control their infrastructure themselves. Um, and we've seen some interesting examples of this where we have a default app template which deploys on Kubernetes and has a bunch of our kind of opinions around how we think web apps or web APIs should be deployed. And then teams, we've seen teams that are a little bit later stage come in customize that template and say, actually, no, this is how we do security. This is how we think about load balancing. These are our compliance requirements. And the app developers don't even know. They're just deploying apps. Mm -hmm. They have no idea that the underlying infrastructure changed. And now suddenly everything's compliant. The ops team is ecstatic. <laughs> um, and, and app devs just keep pushing code. That's kind of the dream for a developer, isn't it? That they can just, they can focus on their code. They don't care if it's being deployed to Kubernetes or to Heroku or to a bare EC2 instance or bare metal or a Raspberry Pi or whatever. They just want to write their code and and see the results in production and and you know get the logs when something goes wrong. Exactly. One of my one of my favorite questions is to ask um, developers when doing any sort of like architecture review or starting some engagement of here's how we're gonna help you with infrastructure is hey, just describe to me what the application looks like on a whiteboard and be as, you can draw whatever boxes you want. We're going to stick to those. Um, the, the the whiteboard level of abstraction. It's nine times out of 10, people do not go up and draw a box that says EC2, nor Kubernetes, nor ECS, or Fargate, <laughs> or subnets, or AZs. They draw a box that says API, and they draw a box that says website, and they draw a line between them. And that's about as complex as it gets. But that's how application developers should think about it. Because if they had to imagine the, all the complexity, it'd be impossible to do their job. So we as DevOps engineers need to help, or we as DevOps or platform engineers need to help application developers stay at the whiteboard level of abstraction. Think like that. Give them those building blocks because that's what's intuitive to them and that's what makes sense to them. We have to make them solid. What's your, what's your term of choice? Do you prefer DevOps engineer or platform engineer? <laughs> uh, <laughs> gosh, that's, a, that's, a, that's the hardest question of this industry. Um, Man, I, I feel like the, the titles in, in the DevOps world are so 
dynamic and uh, so often misconstrued <laughs> and used in different ways. Um, I like DevOps Engineer because I think it speaks to the point of this all, which is operations for developers. That's what we're here. We're here to support devs. We're here to make devs happen, development happen faster. Platform engineering is, I think, a specific type of DevOps engineer, let's say, platform engineers, um, who are really building that platform and not really being the service owners. So as I as we think about this new world we're entering, and this platform engineers and service owners, um, I think platform engineers are a more specific version of DevOps engineer. But I, I also talk to people who use SRE instead of DevOps engineer, or infrastructure engineer, or automation engineer, and it doesn't really matter. <laughs> I think over my career, I've had the title of, um, let's see, sysadmin, um, IT engineer, DevOps engineer, SRE, uh, and probably others. And throughout all of them, I feel like I've kind of always had the same job and same role, despite having all of those different titles. <laughs> Yeah. Was that job uh, the, the the office jester or, or more right <laughs> comic relief <laughs> comic relief and fall guy <laughs> whatever helps the devs <laughs> yeah absolutely That's right does need humor too someone's got to do it <laughs> yes yeah, so, uh, this admin I haven't heard in a little while I, I think I feel like that's um, dropped off quite a bit though. Uh, Definitely worth a mention as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, I look at the salary surveys that all the different marketing firms put out every year. And it's funny because sysadmin is is on there, but the pay scale for that is quite a bit lower than a DevOps engineer. And it's it's one of the like nuggets of knowledge I try to share for people who are sysadmins trying to figure out what to do with their career. I'm like, hey. You're kind of already doing the DevOps thing. Just polish up your resume and and go make some extra cash. Yeah, yeah. I, I, the the different compensation bands for the different titles is pretty insane. I think uh, I saw some platform engineering survey and platform engineers are just DevOps engineers switching to the title platform engineer get a thirty percent <laughs> salary increase. And it's like, <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, just do that. <laughs> just a question of which technologies you're using, but it's the same same job at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's important to highlight is for me, like the the job, you strip away all the marketing terms, all the technical terms. Um, we're there. The software development teams are our customer and our job is to help them build their product successfully. However that looks. Yeah. Make that happen. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There's no rules beyond that. Whatever it takes. Use the best tools at your disposal and uh, use that magic one size fits all solution that we all know about. That definitely exists. <laughs> and uh, you're set. <laughs> the one solution we're not allowed to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that one, that tool <laughs> that, that, that we all... <laughs> Yeah, I, I wish they stopped editing it out on this on this podcast. It's so weird, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, what's the future look like for Zeet? What, what? Tell me about something new and cool that you're 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 going to do. You know, I think uh, I one of the really exciting things about the or I, really one of the just like fun things about the job we get to do is we get to focus on 
actually improving DevOps problems. What I mean by that is, um, I think most DevOps teams kind of play catch up or end up getting put into a spot of playing catch up or playing support where, oh, hey, the CI pipeline's broken, come and fix it. Or, oh, hey, we have to get this launch out in the next two hours. You can help me with that, right? Or, oh, hey, there's a massive security vulnerability. You're on top of that, right? And DevOps engineers don't get a ton of time to actually improve their systems or, or do system engineering or think about what does a better version of this world look like and then get there. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do. We are a team of DevOps engineers. We are a team of infrastructure engineers who are dedicated to just doing that. And so we get to um, spend time experimenting with some of the fun, exciting new things. And uh, we, have a, we have a launch coming out in the next couple of weeks that's going to be very exciting, which adds a lot of capabilities for DevOps engineers, infrastructure engineers to customize our platform. So we're going to be uh, allowing you to bring in kind of external resources, put them into into Zeet, uh, get a bunch of the platform features on that Zeet provides already uh, to whatever resource you have. So you'll get an audit log, you'll get uh, various interfaces, you'll get uh, the ability to roll back changes, whether it's a GitHub project or a Kubernetes manifest that you want to reference or a Terraform module or anything else that you kind of represent in code. That's one one thing we're going to be coming out with soon. And then more and more of our own first-party modules that have really powerful logic built into them. Uh, specifically around multi-cloud, I think there's going to be some really cool things we come out with here. We uh, interviewed a team recently that uh, has a custom compute module that decides whether it should deploy on AWS or Google Cloud at schedule time based off of whatever is cheaper at the, at the moment. Um, and they just all of their compute-based workloads that aren't really data-latency-sensitive, they throw on this compute module, and they had like 75% savings. So we're, we'd, I'd love to come out with a module like that that just gives all of our thousands of customers instant access to this multi-cloud cost savings because we have everything available for us, something we can build, and I want to give to everybody. Everybody should be leveraging these kind of innovations. So I think it's a, a really fun spot about building a dev tool and building an infrastructure tool for DevOps people is you get to go do the like 20% time that you always want to do when you're a DevOps engineer, but you never really get time for. That's that's our job. <laughs> that's what we get paid to work on full time. It's great. <laughs> yeah, and then to be able to, to like pass those, to build that, release it, and let a company take on the benefits of that, specifically in cost savings, because that's such a hard problem in cloud providers you know we um currently you know we can we can scope everything out and plan the right size and then you can do reserved instances in aws or um i forget what the gcp term is for it but basically you make a, a one or a three-year commitment to it oh reserved. Yeah. no sorry i think the opposite yeah yeah preemptible is their their version of a spot instance but yeah, um right but yeah the reservations and um, yeah, so if you can just like bypass all that, because that's kind of the world we live in, right? Instant gratification, no commitments. And um, like asking somebody in the, for a one-year commitment, like in anything is a huge step <laughs> these days. Like it's, it's hard enough to get somebody to commit to a 20-second TikTok video, much less a one-year commitment to an EC2 <laughs> instance. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I, I think that cost savings is there's tons of opportunity. The the uh, uh, maybe even the 
cost strategy around switching clouds is something that we should come out with as a module, help people uh, do that more easily. But there's so many opportunities to kind of make these systems more efficient. And so many of them are just kind of gated by work, like doing doing cost optimization, right. reserve instances. Anyone can do that. It just takes somebody to go and do the effort and have care. <laughs> um, and there's so many teams out there that would benefit massively from that and just don't have that person. So how can we how can we scale this with software um, instead of just you know tribal knowledge and hope that you have the guy who's been burned before on your team? One uh one segment that we've we've started doing or one of my, my favorite questions to you know ask other DevOps or infrastructure people is uh, you know everyone everyone has their favorite horror story of something something crazy going down in a in a DevOps capacity whether it's downtime or you know uh, crazy on call or something like that. Um, well, I think I already asked you about about yours, but uh, Jonathan, I'd be, I'd be curious, like your uh, favorite DevOps horror story. Oh, I, I, I'll usually tell the story early, early in my career. I think it was 2006. I had just, I had gotten hired as a network engineer. Another one of those titles that does the exact same thing as everyone else. <laughs> um, and so the, the company hired me to, to basically set up a private cloud, if you will. We didn't call it that back then, but that's what it was. Uh, for a uh, spam filtering service that they had written. Uh, the guy who wrote it uh, left the company, so they needed someone to come in, a developer to come in, and a network engineer to come in, and they were going to try to you know, make this cloud thing. And it was just a few weeks after starting, um, and the new developer made a, a change that broke things. <laughs> pushed it. So we, we, had, we installed this service... Uh, on-premise to our clients at the time. We weren't in the cloud yet. I was hired to put it in the cloud. Um, so we pushed this out to 150 or 200 something customers and every one of them broke. Stopped processing mail, which meant they couldn't email us for support. Uh, and so, of course, they started calling us. And the funny thing is, this was on Black Friday. Oh, no. <laughs> for some god-awful reason, we decided to push this untested change <laughs> on Thanksgiving weekend. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it was it was crazy. It turns out the, the problem was a single a single bit, uh, a permissions bit had not been set on a on a script, <laughs> so it was not executable. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a single bit that kind of changed my career because you know I was I was pretty green. I didn't really have a lot of experience with the stuff. You know, I knew how to how to code a bit. I, I wasn't even a really. I didn't really consider myself even a coder yet. Um, I kind of cut my teeth on coding at that job. You know, I could I could hack Perl scripts and Bash scripts together, but I wasn't really a coder. Um, so yeah, that, that that's kind of the story that uh, sort of opened my eyes, I guess, in a way to uh, platform engineering, resilience engineering, kind of even just sort of best practices about coding. Like, oh, we should write tests to detect this for us. You can't. You can never be smart enough to catch everything. You have to rely on systems and tools to to help you out. So that's that's kind of the lesson I took from that. That's a that's a good one. Uh, getting your uh, mail or your customers unable to send support mail because their mailbox is down is a nice little chicken and egg there too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about you, Johnny? Give us a good story. I think uh, I think my my best story um, was probably in. in so a couple months after we built kind of this in, the initial version of this uh, this platform that handled all of our DevOps and all of our infrastructure back at that previous startup we were talking about earlier, um, 
one of the big pieces of infrastructure that we had to manage was a Elasticsearch cluster. And this was a very manually managed resource. We was no, no Kubernetes, no Helm chart, no managed Elasticsearch. It was three EC2 instances and an SSH connection. Um, so I, I was in charge of managing this, but we had just hired a new engineer who was a, a fresh grad from, from Cornell. And the two of us were working on optimizing it together. Um, mind you, I'm still in high school, so I'm only showing up after three o'clock and I'm like a 15 year old kid. And this is a <laughs> fresh Cornell grad who, who's really trying to prove himself. And um, I, I was in charge of teaching him kind of the ropes of the company. And uh, it, that was an interesting mentorship because uh, I don't think he really knew, thought I knew what I was doing. <laughs> we worked together on this Elasticsearch project for a week or two together, and it comes time to go deploy it. And we go and deploy it. All is great. Massive efficiency improvements. Everyone's happy. Um, all we all we all sleep well that night. The next day is a Saturday, and I'm I'm out in the middle of the day, getting lunch with some friends or something, and I get a text from this uh, from this new intern. And he's like, "Hey, um, real quick, could you go to this URL?" And he sends me a five hundred two URL. I'm like, "Uh oh." Why, uh, why is this 502-ing, my guy? This is a little concerning. What's going on? And he just sends me a screenshot of the AWS console. And he's logged into the Ohio US East 2 region, and it's the EC2 tab, and there's no instances there. We had a full <laughs> running Ohio region. What, what happened? Where'd it go? We had 100 instances here yesterday. And he had accidentally clicked select all and terminate in the AWS console. <laughs> and... Deleted Whoa. our entire Ohio region. I yeah, I asked the same question. Did, did, did he think he was on a different instance or something? Or he or? thought he'd selected, I think, just one of them. He was trying to push out an update to the cluster we just got in live yesterday, and he'd accidentally clicked select all, and uh, we didn't have proper IAM permissions in place to stop that from being a bad action. Um, yeah. So I had to run home missed my lunch, fixed this, spun up the new region. Thankfully, think because we had this platform, uh, spinning up the new region took only one click and then a lot of stressful watching and waiting. <laughs> um, but it did come up successfully and we were able to recover in the about an hour. Um, but that was a great learning, I think, for me of, you know, trust your teammates, but also make sure there's controls in place to prevent a, a mistake from, from going bad. And... Uh, make sure you have systems in place to recover. <laughs> Being able to spin up that whole new region was a godsend. I would have had to spend the rest of my week, if not week, or weekend, if not week, um, spinning that up manually by hand if we didn't have that in place. So that was probably my worst outage. And the it's completely uh, not caused by anything real. <laughs> if, if it was customers scaling, <laughs> that'd be one thing. But um, just an internal mistake has made it that much more painful. I think the majority of industry mistakes are like that. <laughs> Very fair. You, know, you, you hear when when Facebook or Fastly or whoever, you know, all the big all the big ones that make the news. It's some or, or even Twitter recently. It was so somebody pushed a change and didn't know what was happening, or they you know they deleted the wrong thing, or, or GitHub published an SSH key by accident. You know, it's 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 <laughs> people, and that's not that's not to blame the people, um, but it's it's uh, we are the weakest link. <laughs> yeah. We uh we can make automation. That's a that's how we need to do all of this. It's the only thing that scales, and it's the only thing that's reliable. <laughs> yep. Right, for sure. I had a very similar incident to the one you just told, Johnny. I was working for this company. We had a MongoDB cluster, 
that we were running on EC2 instances, and it was it was pretty pretty active. Um, it consumed retail product feeds and either updated or added about 18 million products per hour from this feed that it guide. And I highlighted the EC2 instances and clicked terminate, thinking that I was on the dev cluster that I just built. Turns out it wasn't. I was on the prod <laughs> cluster and I nuked the entire prod cluster. And um, I've done that sort of thing so many times. Yeah, yeah. So the takeaway from the wrong server, right? Yeah. So the big takeaway for me was um, some of the things I learned is use good naming for your EC2 instances because it it prop it popped up the message there says, "Are you sure you want to terminate?" and gave the name of the instances, and I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I know those are the ones I want to delete. I just clicked the checkbox, okay?" And so I clicked yes. Um. So good naming so that it's clear what you're working on. Termination protection so that you can't terminate your production instances. Uh, like you mentioned, IAM permissions to add an extra layer of protection for you there. Another good one that I like to use now is separate AWS accounts um, so that your production account is a different AWS account than your development account, or if you're over in GCP, that it's a different project. Um, yeah, so all of that. The only saving grace for me there was all of the data was on uh, EBS volumes that did not delete when I terminated the instance. So I was able to launch a new MongoDB instance and just reattach those instances and all the data was there. So it was only down for, I don't know, maybe an hour or so, but uh, it was still a painful hour. That is is very lucky. That's awesome. Um, But yeah. Either lucky or or well well engineered, well thought out. <laughs> um, oh no, it was pure luck. It was pure luck. <laughs> <laughs> Try to give you a little bit of credit, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I love that. I, I think how do you quickly recover when something goes bad? Because something will go bad. Um, but just like the first time you're in that sit- position and you look around and you're like, oh shoot. It's all broken, and I have to fix this. Is a it's a moment, you know. It's a it's a it's a defining moment in your in your DevOps career. Of you make it past that, and yeah, you can you can bring broad back. Good job. <laughs> yeah, it's a growth opportunity. Exactly. I, I think that's really the one of the most important lessons anybody can learn in this industry is that things will go wrong, and stop trying to prevent. I mean, I don't, I don't mean that literally. I mean, there are definitely things we should do to prevent things from going wrong. But if, if that's what you're banking on, you will fail. You must assume that things will go wrong. The production database will be deleted. You will write bugs, et cetera, et cetera. And optimize for recovery, not for prevention. One of the early uh, kind of, I don't know, bug isn't necessarily the right word, but architectural misstep that we made um, with kind of this this initial platform. It sounds very politically correct. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, well, you'll, you'll, you'll hear why. Um, we we had a, the system that, you know, stored all the definitions of how our applications were supposed to run and, and build and all this. Um, and that was stored in some central database and some central API. Uh, and then every every region of our, of our 
service would uh, would pull from this database and determine if it had all the right services up and running, and if not, spin them up. Um, well, the service that actually defined what should be available was also deployed through the system. And so there was one time that we had the, the system go down and it couldn't come back up because the system that was a necessary dependency of it also wasn't up and it couldn't come up because the system was down. And we just got into this <laughs> chicken and egg where our entire API and our entire service was down because suddenly the database was saying, oh, there's supposed to be no services running. What do you mean? It, this is empty. And so every region was actively spinning itself down. Um, and that one <laughs> was a was a catastrophe, honestly, uh, of a, just cascading both within every... We were deployed to 15 regions at the time, and we had tens of thousands of EC2 instances. And I was looking at every single region dwindling rapidly, going <laughs> just minus one instance, minus one instance, minus one instance. And then at the same time, every region disappearing off the book. So it was just everything collapsing. And the the fix to all of this was I ended up SSHing onto the the admin box that had this database that was this central kind of source of truth and just running a Git clone and running the service myself. And I just had to run it for one minute to get everything back up and running. And you know what? You just had to do what you had to do. I don't run Git on prod. Don't SSH into prod. These are bad practices. But got the system back up. Then re-architected it fixed that problem. But I wasn't going to, oh no, I have to re-architecture this whole system and design a new system because everything is down right now. No, I have to do what I have to do, just get it back up and then fix the real problems because problems are going to happen. If I try to design a perfect system right now, I'm just going to fail. <laughs> to kind of your, your, your point there, Jonathan. Task failed successfully. Woohoo. <laughs> <laughs> Right on. So we are approaching the one hour mark on here. Should we uh, do some picks? All right. Have you got one for us, Jonathan? I do. I'm going to do a little bit of an unusual one this time. Uh, I was I was uh, shaving a couple weeks ago when I dropped my razor on the ground and it snapped in half. And I was so annoyed. Just, uh, I, I have a what do they call it? A safety razor, I guess, you know, old style. Not, I don't have one of those big fancy Gillette ones or whatever, like 16,000 blades and, you know, vibrating sensors and 3D, whatever. It's just a razor. You know, I put 10 cent blades in it and it works great. Uh, and it fell and broke. So I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to splurge this time. I'm going to research and find the best possible razor I can get. And I'm going to buy that. And so I did some research and it turns out it was a model I already had. Apparently, I did the same research <laughs> 10 years ago when I bought this one. <laughs> uh, let me find the model here so I can get the proper pick. I have the wrong window open. So my, my pick for the, the week is the Merker, M-E-R-K-U-R. It's a German company, apparently. Merker Duvo, Duvo, Duvo Safety Razor 34C. They have two models. They have one of the short handle, one of the long handle. I got the short handles because it takes up less space in my luggage when I'm traveling. Um, but I use it at home too. So Merker Dovo 34C, uh, it's about 40, 50 bucks, but then you fill it for about 10 years. till you drop it on the floor with 10 cent razors. So it actually saves a ton of money over one of those big fancy 3d app based ones, whatever they have these days. <laughs> yeah. Which are really expensive and, and don't seem to last that long. Yeah. All right. On. That's me. All right, Johnny. Johnny, you got a pick for us? Yeah, let's see. Uh, 
uh, I, I like this. Uh, I like the spit you guys do. Um, I'm probably going to go with the, uh, just started reading this book yesterday, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Enjoying it so far. So I'm going to go, that's my uh, pick for the week. Can't, don't have a full review yet because I just started yesterday, but uh, ask me in a week. <laughs> All right. Right on. So for is it, me, is it fiction or, or what, what is it? Yeah, it's a, it's a novel um, okay. about kind of a game designer future um, or a couple who meets in a game design school in the future and ends up changing kind of how the gaming world works. Very ready, ready player one and platform engineering. Oh, <laughs> nice. Tied in, you know, well, got a, got a yeah, well played, <laughs> well played. <laughs> Cool. My pick for the week is actually going to be Polygon's new ZK EVM blockchain. We launched it yesterday, but by the time this podcast comes out, that will be a couple of weeks ago. Um, But the ZK EVM chain is super cool because it's a blockchain that uses zero-knowledge proofs that allows us to scale Ethereum and then write those transactions back to Ethereum so you get the security and safety provided by Ethereum using zero-knowledge proofs. And the ZK team at Polygon has put in a massive amount of effort for this and are actually launching this at least a year, if not a couple years, ahead of when anyone thought that we would have this possible. So pretty exciting stuff if you're interested in blockchain or want to see how this looks long term i think zk evm is a cool way to get introduced to that so that's my pick for the week and then um johnny if people want to learn more about zeet or engage with you how can they do that yeah uh best place is probably their twitter or linkedin um zeet is z-e-e-t our website is z-e-e-t.co um you can find me online at johnny dallas um I'm the only Johnny in my typical username on most platforms. Um, but uh, yeah, love to love to talk to anyone who's listening. Yeah, you've got a podcast also, right? Yeah, and we run a we run a podcast um, talking about platform engineering and all things DevOps called The Platform um, over on the Z YouTube channel. Um, well, you can find it on my socials as well. So if you're ever interested in learning more about platform engineering, multi-cloud, and kind of where we're where we're headed as an industry. Um, want to hear me hear me talk about it more come uh, come hang out come listen right on well thank you so much for being on the show today thanks for having me it was a uh, it was great to great chat with you guys you too and uh thanks for listening everyone we'll see y'all in the next episode